Awesome. Well, if you're new and visiting, my name is Brendan, one of the pastors here. And it's so good to be a church and be part of a family, isn't it? I don't know what your experience of church is like, but the church is a family. Uh, in families, you'll notice, like this morning, things don't always go to plan. Uh, we were hoping to do communion this morning. It didn't go to plan, but isn't that a beautiful part of family? Things don't always go to plan in families, and yet we still carry on loving each other, being together, enjoying being together. Uh, in a family, we see as well God work in the midst of dearly loved people. I had the pleasure of being on the door this morning, and, and uh, Gia, who was up here last week sharing about her struggles, shared with me this morning how much better she's been doing recently. So praise God for that. God is at work in our midst. And this morning's a really wonderful morning because we're launching a new series uh, based off the book by Adam Ramsey called Truth on Fire, Gazing at God Until Your Heart Sings. And it's really a book and a, therefore a series about two things that belong closely together. And that is uh, two things that belong closely together but are so easily driven apart time and time again. Solid biblical truth and a genuine passion for the Lord Jesus. Two things that belong together. And at times it can almost feel like there's a profound divide between these two things in our city, um, such that we need to choose one or the other. Uh, Maybe you're here this morning and you're from a a church tradition that's big on uh, Bible teaching and the life of the mind. Uh, you've loved being part of a church that has rigorous Bible studies. The preaching is deep. The preaching is rich. It's meaty and it's intellectually stimulating. Uh, there's a, a culture that values theological education. And maybe you've even read systematic theology with others in your past church or your current church. And yet at the same time, you sense there's something missing. There's an absence of passion. There's an absence of It feels at times faith and joy. Uh, There's people that know lots about God as they read it in the Bible, but the experience is of little intimacy and a feeling of somewhat of distance between you and God. And as you gather for worship, you can sometimes find yourself wondering, does anyone actually believe the hymns that you're singing? Uh, Others are from a church tradition that's big on experience, Uh, You're big on faith and the life of the heart. Uh, There's a real passion for God and a heart that's got you involved in serving in lots of different ways. Sunday gatherings are filled with excitement and passion and praise. And there's a huge focus on trusting God and taking risks and being out on mission. But on reflection, the Bible just doesn't seem to feature much in your Sunday gatherings. And sometimes you question just how well you know the God that you confess to love. Two polar experiences of two truths that belong together. I grew up on the south coast uh, in Dapto. um, And I remember distinctly as a younger man uh, being very skeptical about those who took studying the Bible too seriously. Uh, I was raised in evangelical churches, and yet where I grew up, there was a culture of cynicism about theological study. 
uh, large Bible colleges where I grew up had a reputation of being sausage factories, just producing the same kind of person out time and time again. The chosen frozen, uh, sometimes known as. A real faith, from my perspective, was passionate worship. It was being on mission, and it was loving and serving the poor. And yet I've come to understand over the, over the years is that what I missed is that you can't actually love God without knowing Him first. You see, we're a church that believes the Bible and passion, the mind and the heart, truth and fire belong together. And we, we believe that not just because it's our idea, but because that's what Jesus taught. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, the following. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. We've got to love him with everything, church, heart and mind included. I love what Adam Ramsey says. He puts it so well. He says, A sharp mind with a cold heart is just as much a fail as a heart radically on fire about nonsense. Isn't that true? A sharp mind, cold heart, no different from being on fire, but about absolute nonsense. We need both together. And church, that's what this series is about. Now, can I ask you a question as we kick off? How on fire is the truth of God's word in your life? You know, maybe you're here today and, and you, you distinctly are aware that it, it ain't on fire for you. And it's the funny thing about holidays. It leads to a slower pace of life in many ways with more time, but it doesn't necessarily correspond to a growth in our heart for God. It's often dulled at this time. We find ourselves distracted by holidays, distracted by sport, distracted by relaxation, distracted by a loss of routine and nibbling at the table of the world instead of drinking deeply of God. And so for the next six six weeks, if that's your experience, if you're calming with a heart dulled, we're going to just be trying to fan a flame, a heart of love for God's Word as a church. We're going to try and fan truth on fire in our hearts, not by giving you a list of things to do, but by just stopping and staring at the God that is revealed to us in and through our Lord Jesus. Each week we're going to stop and we're going to stare at a different aspect of what is God, God is like. And we're going to stare until our hearts begin to sing. So this series, uh, it's going to be six weeks camped out looking at these different aspects. And there's not going to be any big application points. It's not what this is about. It's not just a desire to give you a whole bunch of things to go away and do. We're just going to be stopping and staring and trying to get our hearts on fire. So if you have your Bibles there, it doesn't matter if you don't. If you do have your Bible, grab it um, and open up to Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. Exodus, second book of the Bible, right back at the start. Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read uh, to us and then pray as we begin a message this morning. Exodus chapter 33, right at the start of the Bible, verse 18. Let's read this word. This is the word of God to us this morning. Moses said, Please, show me your glory. And he said, 
I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me which you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the ground and worshipped. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we come before your throne as your people this morning with one simple request. Fan our hearts aflame with love for you. Help us see Christ, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we live in a culture that is incredibly self-centered. Our greatest fears, our highest thoughts, and our most important goals tend to revolve around ourselves. Just by way of example, I was listening just this week to tech billionaire Elon Musk uh, recently on a TED Talk. And he was asked by his interviewer uh, why he wants to try and establish Mars as a a human colony for one million people by 2050. And and what he said, I, I found it really interesting. He said the following. There have to be reasons that get you up in the morning and make you want to live. Why do you want to live? What's the point? What inspires you? What do you love about the future? If the future does not include being out there among the stars and being a multi-planet species, I find that incredibly depressing. The value of beauty and inspiration is very much underrated, no question. But I want to be clear. I'm not trying to be anyone's savior. I'm just trying to think about the future and not be sad. And it's so interesting. I find in so many ways, Elon Musk represents perfectly the spirit of our age. 
you know, on the one hand, there's this deep pessimism about the future. You know, with wars and climate change and poverty and disease and destruction of the environment leading to kind of like a hopelessness and a need for, as Elon says, a reason to live. And yet on the other hand, there's this kind of self-confidence, a desire to carve out a future for the planet in our own strength and on our own terms. What's absent from this mix of hopelessness and self-confidence in our culture? I put to you this morning that the thing that is absent is any sense of awareness of the goodness and greatness of God. You know, we live in a culture that has tunnel vision-like focus on ourselves, our problems, and our achievements. And 2023, in, in so many ways, was no different from any other year. Story after story of achievements that both inspire us on the one hand and deeply trouble us on the other. Uh, The James Webb Telescope took images uh, this past year from uh, less than 400 million years after the Big Bang, things into the universe we've never seen before. Uh, 2023 was the year of artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence can now write your assignments for uni or for school. Isn't that amazing? It can answer complex questions. It can uh, monitor shoplifters at Woolworths, but it can also take your job. And it can also lead to waging wars on other countries. And all these stories and all these achievements deeply affect not only the way we imagine the world around us, but the way we imagine God as well. On one level, we can be so focused with ourselves and distracted by entertainment and media and news and travel and activities and achievements that we rarely think about God deeply anymore. And on another level, we can be so surrounded by this deep cultural anxiety that the universe is so vast and yet feels so cold and out of control that any hope we have for progress and good falls on us. And the fruit is that when we do think about God, we remake God in our own image. If there is a God out there, he must just be a better version of of us and exist for us to make us comfortable, to make us happy. And J.I. Packer uh, summarizes it so well from his book, uh, Knowing God. He says it this way. He says, The Christian's instincts of trust and worship are stimulated very powerfully by knowledge of the greatness of God. But this is knowledge which Christians today largely lack. And that is one reason why our faith is so feeble and our worship so flabby. We are modern people, and modern people, though they cherish great thoughts of themselves, have as a rule small thoughts of God. I don't think I could say it any better. Great thoughts of ourselves, small thoughts about God. Well, today at the start of 2024, We're just going to stop and stare about the God who is greater than anything we can imagine. If you're taking notes this morning for our first message in this series of Truth on Fire, uh, I've entitled God is Other. God is not like us. He is other. We've got three points, but we're going to be spending most of the time on point one. So it's not a two-hour sermon. Don't freak out, you know, when we we start, you know, racking up some time on point number one. And then two 
are smaller points that follow. But as is the case with this whole series, the aim really of today is to rekindle kind of childlike wonder for who God is uh, and the God in particular that is not like us. Well, let's dive into point number one for this morning, which I've entitled, When God Proclaimed His Name. When God Proclaimed His Name. See, our main passage today, it's one of the most important passages in the whole of the Old Testament. Uh, God had rescued His people from slavery in Egypt through Moses. He had generously entered into this special relationship with them and was just running down the details with Moses when God was hugely betrayed by his own people. Uh, You may well be familiar with the story. Moses comes down from the mountain with these two tablets of stone, uh, some of the terms of their uh, relationship with God, and sees this massive party taking place amongst God's people. And there's these two idols, these two golden calves they've constructed for themselves, and they are worshipping them, and they are partying together. Just after having entered a relationship with God, they've betrayed him already. Moses is furious. He's so mad, he smashes those stone tablets into pieces. And he grinds up the idols into dust, and he makes the people drink the idols to desecrate them. And then Moses turns to God, and he pleads with God to forgive his people. And God does. And then he pleads with God not to abandon them, but to dwell with them. And God says he will. And finally, he seems to plead with God for a sign that God really is going to be with them. And that's when we get to our passage. Read with me again verse 18 of our passage. Moses said, Please, show me your glory. It's one of those words we use all the time, isn't it? Glory. But what does it actually mean? Well, today if we say he received all the glory for his performance, we mean he received all the honor and praise, right? Or if we say a building has been transformed back to its former glory, we mean it's been transformed back to something that looks magnificent and beautiful and wonderful in stature. The word Moses uses here has its origin in the word for heaviness, weight, mass, Uh, from a time when people used to carry all their possessions around with them. And therefore, a person that had lots of possessions, who was wealthy, who was powerful, who who was honorable, would be a weighty person. They would be a glorious person. Moses is saying, therefore, to God, show me your power. Show me your authority. Show me your praiseworthiness. Show me your glory. And in the following passage, God outlines several aspects of what he is like, things that make him glorious and qualities that make him completely different from us. And the first is that he's good. Verse 19, he says, in response to revealing his glory, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Moses asked to see God's glory. God says he'll reveal what? His goodness. See, God's power, God's authority, God's praiseworthiness is most clearly seen in his goodness, that he is good. You see, at his core, God is, in fact, a loving relationship, a father who loves his son through the Holy Spirit. That is who he is. 
That is how God is love. He is a loving relationship. As we begin, it's probably worth pausing and, and stopping to consider, is, is that how you think about God? That at his very core, at his very essence, is overwhelming goodness. But secondly, not just that, he reveals that he is completely self-determined and self-sufficient as well. Now read with me again, verse 19, he says this, he says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. You see, when God says he will proclaim his name, it's not actually like I would do, you know, it's like me weirdly going, Brendan, Brendan, before you, that would be strange, wouldn't it? My parents just happened to like the name Brendan, and so they called me Brendan. But names in the Bible, it, it means something completely different. Names in the Bible signify not just something someone likes, but signify someone's character. It signifies not what they like, but what they are like, their personality. And so when we read in the Bible the word, the Lord, it's actually, when it's in those lowercase, the, the uppercase um, uh, written L-O-R-D. It's a respectful way of translating God's personal name in the Bible, which is Yahweh. So Yahweh is a name based on the verb to be in Hebrew, the word I am. And Yahweh translates as something like, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. It signifies that God is a God who is completely self-determined and completely self-sufficient. See, God is the creator and sustainer of everything that exists in this vast universe, and it is vast. I was reading this week that the known universe is approximately 94 billion light years across. And by the known universe, it simply means the edge of the map as we can see it. Just to put that in perspective about how big that is, if you try driving across the universe at 100 kilometers an hour, you would take 35 million times the current age of the universe to do it. It just blows your mind. You know, we've been told that there's approximately 100 billion people who have ever lived on the face of the earth. And if we say that the average person lived 80 years and had approximately 150 social contacts, people who spent time with them and knew them, at 100 kilometers an hour, you could watch full-time the whole of those people's lives, like a full-life documentary from birth to death, for each one of the 150 different persons' perspectives of the people that knew each of those 100 billion people uh, for the entirety of those lives, and you would make it 1% of the way across the known universe at 100 kilometers an hour. The universe is incredibly vast. There are 100 billion stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way, which is one of approximately 2 trillion galaxies in the observable universe. These numbers are so vast, it's impossible for us to understand. The Bible teaches us that God made it all. It means that nothing in the universe is here by accident or chance. It means that everything is here by gift by generosity, by gratuity. The world and everything in it did not just have to be. The world is here because God is generous 
and has given it to us. See, to know the great I am stands behind the universe is to receive everything as gift from his hand with great thanksgiving and praise. It also means that God does not need anything from anyone. And it also means that God does not owe anything to anyone. God doesn't need love. He is a perfect loving relationship. God doesn't need stuff. All that exists comes from his hands. God is not just a being greater than us, like comparing Agent Carter to Thor in the Marvel comic universe or Barack Obama to a kinder kid. No, he's the author of the whole story. When the Bible says he dwells in the heavens or high above, it doesn't mean far off in space. It means that he is infinitely greater than us. See, it's not uncommon to hear people say in our culture, I'm angry with God right now. And I, I understand that there's real pain in this world. It's broken. They're hard questions. But you can only be angry with God if you think he owes you something. And the Bible teaches he doesn't owe anyone anything. Verse 19 says, God goes on to say, And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I will be who I will be. I will show grace to whosoever I choose. See, God is overflowing with goodness and grace. This is true. But no person has any rights before him. I wonder if I could ask you a difficult question. Do you live with a sense of God's lavish grace towards you each and every day? Friends, you see, his goodness is so great, it also means his presence is dangerous for those who are not good. And that brings us to the third thing our passage reveals, which is that he is powerful and he is dangerous. Now, recently, I watched the film Oppenheimer. Um, if you're familiar with it, it's the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer, who uh, created the first atomic bomb. And there's a real famous climactic scene at the center of the film which is where the detonation of the first uh, atomic bomb occurred. It's called the Trinity Test, and it happened on the 16th of July in 1945. And there was real great fear and apprehension about this test. Uh, they'd spent billions in the race against the Nazis and the Soviets to develop this weapon, and there was a theoretical chance that this explosion could ignite the atmosphere and end the world. And Robert Oppenheimer and his fellow scientists are in a bunker nine kilometers from the detonation site watching on in earnestly as the countdown begins. And as they give the green light and go and the bomb is detonated, there's silence as this blinding light ensues. And this huge mushroom cloud reaches up towards the sky. And there's this eerie silence until a massive shockwave, boom, slams into the watching observers. The huge, previously unseen power of a nuclear weapon. 
In a similar vein to the Trinity test, God is not someone who can be trifled with or controlled. He's so pure and good that his very being burns against all that is wicked and corrupt. His power is so great that to come into his unmediated presence is to be consumed. See, the difference is Trinity was a relatively small nuclear explosion. They say a hydrogen bomb is about a thousand times greater than the Trinity test. And the sun, by way of comparison, is the equivalent of 10 billion hydrogen bombs going off each and every second. And the sun is, again, a modest star out of 100 billion other stars in our galaxy that God spoke into being. And so we read God say in verse 20 of our passage, he said, But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. God says that to have a face-to-face, unmediated encounter with his glory is to die. Instead, he says to Moses, cut two new stones, climb back up that mountain to Mount Sinai in the morning. No one may be on the entire mountain. No herds may even graze opposite the mountain. And I will cover you with my hand as I pass by. And you'll see, not my face, but my back. It's a picture of God's unlimited power. Friends, have you come to worship this morning with that kind of sense of God's power? That he is dangerous. See, God is incredibly powerful and dangerous, but in his mercy, he goes on to pass before Moses and proclaim his name, revealing perhaps the clearest description of his nature in the entire Old Testament. And that's the final thing we see in this passage about what God is like. It's that he is both merciful and just. Read with me verse 6 of chapter 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Look at how beautiful the words are that God uses to describe himself. He is merciful and he is gracious. He is slow to anger. That doesn't mean that he lets people off. No, it, verse 7 makes clear that he won't let anybody off. It means that he gives people time. He gives people time to turn back to him. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness for thousands. Forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion and sin. But if that's all God was like, if he was all forgiveness and all mercy, he wouldn't be good. You only need to sit with someone who's suffered serious injustice to know that's true. There's so much wrong that has been done in this world, justice is needed. A God of justiceless love and kindness would not be a God worthy of worship. Neither would a God of harsh, merciless justice Instead, the rich biblical truth is that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Verse 7 puts it this way, But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God will hold to account those who are guilty. 
Even when sin persists to the second generation, someone's children, and the third generation, it still persists. And to the fourth generation, it persists. He will still continue to hold perpetrators to account. See, the deepest longings of our heart in a broken world is for this kind of rule, for justice with mercy. And so Moses, on hearing this, responds in the only appropriate way. He bows down and he worships God. See, I trust that as we've been surveying the way God reveals himself to Moses, how different he is from us. It's been stirring your affections. You know, after such a huge failure by his people, he reveals his goodness so powerfully to them. But if we simply let things stop here, we wouldn't have a full picture of how unlike us he truly is. That's why we need our second point of today, which is when Jesus came walking on water. You see, the truth is that God has not only revealed himself by passing by Moses, but even more powerfully in the person and work of his son, Jesus. Now, in one particular passage from the Gospels, Jesus had just performed an amazing miracle. He had just fed 5,000 men plus women and children with five loaves of bread and two fish. It's amazing. It was a miracle that was meant to show that as God the Son, he provides for his people. And so after performing this miracle, Jesus sends out his disciples on a boat across the Sea of Galilee. And he remains on a mountaintop to pray alone. And the Sea of Galilee is about 200 meters below sea level. And so it's prone to these big rushes of wind and sudden storms. And Jesus, from his view on the mountaintop, can see that his disciples in this fishing boat are in trouble. And so Jesus sets out to see them uh, in the fourth watch of the night. That's somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., the early hours of the morning. We read the following in Mark chapter 6, verse 47. Jesus says, or the, the word of God says, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea. And he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making pain, headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. And Jesus came out to his disciples, but what does it mean that he meant to pass by them? Does it mean that he meant to avoid them, to beat them to the other side without them knowing? No, this is the exact same language used in Exodus 33. He meant to pass them by and reveal to them his glory. In Job chapter 9, verse 8, it says, God who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Jesus in compassion is walking on the seas out to his disciples to show them that he is God. See, the greatest miracle the world has ever seen is the one we just celebrated at Christmas. That the eternal Son of God, who made stars trillions of times the size of this earth, would become a tiny helpless baby born into squalor in first century Palestine. Two things that have no place belonging together, power that formed vast galaxies and helpless babies that God eternal would forever become flesh like us. Verse 49, it says, But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, 
It is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them. And the wind ceased. And they were utterly astonished. For they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. See, as Jesus approached his disciples to reveal his glory, they still couldn't see it. Not because the display of divinity was unclear, but because their hearts were hard. They stubbornly refused to believe in him. But this, friends, was the very reason for which he had come. Jesus is where the mercy and justice of God collide. He is so unlike us. You know, as a culture, we're so divided. On the left, there's those who cry out for mercy and kindness towards all, but it almost seems void of justice. Defund the police. And on the right, it, there's those that constantly call for stricter laws, more law enforcement, but it seems void of mercy as they cry, lock them up and throw away the key. But behold the Son of God, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Just like the Israelites who made idols and the disciples who had hard hearts, we've sinned against God. And in love, he was compelled to go to the cross to pay for our sins. And in faithfulness, he stayed the course and laid down his life, crying, it is finished to satisfy the justice of God. And in glory, he was raised to new life to forgive all who come to him in repentance and faith. Perfect love meets perfect justice in the one who paid for it all. My friends, doesn't staring at God in through Jesus just make your heart want to sing? As Paul says in Colossians, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is where the guessing games about God stop. We only need to stop and stare at him. Well, that brings us now to our third point and our closing point of this message. And I've entitled this point, When Childlike Faith is What We Need. You know, we've been looking at some incredible truths this morning in this passage. It kind of left me pondering, how do we respond to this? I kind of felt the Lord impressing the following verses on my heart for us this morning from the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 18. It says this, And at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says that turning your life around and becoming like a child is a core part of being a Christian. In fact, you can't be his disciple without doing it. Just let me think, what does it mean? I mean, does Jesus mean acting childishly, uh, childishly? Does he mean like having poor personal hygiene and just eating things off the floor or refusing to sleep or chucking tantrums? He, you know, he explains what he means in verse 4. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child. See, Jesus wants to draw our attention to the humble faith of little kids. See, they find delight in simple things like ice cream, playgrounds, and playdates. They're not cynical like we are, intuitively questioning people's motives. Why are they doing that? What are they about? They intuitively trust their parents and caregivers. They, they think you're incredible. You know, I have the distinct uh, 
pleasure of being a parent of three very little boys. And this has been a really special Christmas because there's been, for the first time, just a huge excitement around Christmas. Uh, Overwhelming joy on several occasions. My son Isaac, the middle child, loves three things, dinosaurs, trucks, and Paw Patrol. And as a brilliant dad on the Boxing Day, uh, the the, uh, Black Friday sales, I found the perfect gift. It was a Paw Patrol truck that catches dinosaurs, all three in one. And when he got that, he was so excited. There was no sharing, though. It was like, rah, don't you touch my thing? Hey, he's touching my thing. Um, Elijah, my son who loves numbers, he began the countdown of Christmas. I don't know, like 77 days or something like that in each day. 76 sleeps to go to Christmas. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Okay, thanks for telling us, Elijah. And there were just some moments of sweet trust as well. Uh, my son Isaac, every possible question you could ask, he's looking at me. Uh, why is it green? Why are you eating that? Why are you change your shirt? Why are we going there? Is that for me? Is that for you? Is that not for me? Um, nightmares in the middle of the night. Who do they call for? They call for me to comfort them. Uh, Elijah had a real doozy uh, this Christmas. He said, Dad, if someone calls your name, you should follow them. And I thought about that and went, Ooh, I don't think so. No, my son, if it's your dad, yes. But if someone you don't know, you shouldn't just follow them. No, that's probably a bit too trusting. Um, and then my favorite, I was uh, putting Elijah to bed. And he said to me, Dad, you are so, so big. <laughs> and, and me being me, I said, thought about it, and I said, yes, I am, son. <laughs> yes, I am. See, children have this deep, humble, precious, intuitive trust, don't they? If you apply it to sinful people, it's risky. But if applied to God Almighty, it's precious. Let's start this year asking God to grow us in childlike trust of Him. Let's reject our cultures preoccupied with great thoughts about us. Instead, let's run to our Father in Heaven who's gloriously different from us and keep staring into our hearts' sin. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we come before your throne. We confess, I confess this morning that my thoughts are so often not of you, but of me. My thoughts of you are often not the thoughts of the great God who made all things, but of a little God who is more like me. Lord God, as your people this morning, we ask, Would you help us trust you? Would you help us look to you? And would you give us a deep confidence that you are just like your son, our Lord Jesus, who is willing to lay it all down, such as his great love for us. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.